0: Welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. If you are brand new to the show, welcome. Thank you for being here. We are happy to have you. If you are a returning listener, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for supporting us. And I hope that you guys are enjoying the content as much as I am enjoying putting these interviews out there for you. Now, today, I have a guest that I've been trying to get on for months now. And uh, this guy is super cool. His name is Scott Burge. Scott is a divisional coordinator for the RCMP. He covers covert officer safety training and tactical carbide training for his division. He has a wealth of knowledge and experience and we kind of just jump right into it. We start talking a little bit about plain clothes operations. Uh, we talk a little bit about training. Uh, we talk about some standardization as far as RCMP goes. And- A little later on in the podcast, Scott shares with us his inspiration for becoming a trainer. We talk about the Mayor Thorpe shooting, what that was about and how that changed his trajectory and why he wanted to get into training law enforcement officers and how he felt that he could help make a difference. So super powerful episode, really intense conversation at some points. We also branch off, completely go down the rabbit hole about Kit at some points. So I hope you guys enjoy that as well. And uh, without any further ado, let's jump right into it and get Scott on the line. Here we go. All right, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Honestly, it's been, uh, it's been too long. I know we've been talking for a couple months now. You always seem to be tasked away, but I, I gave everybody a little bit of an intro as to who you are and what you do. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: All right. Well, thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, uh, when you were talking before, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and have a chat with you. Yeah, so for me, my background, I uh, started as a policeman in 2001 did my fair share of patrol stuff, been overseas on a UN tour as a policeman in a training capacity. And then I did the other half of my uh, career has been in plain clothes. About two years ago, I ended up going into a training section. So that's where I am right now uh, with the RCMP that whole time. I had a pretty fortunate career up until now. We'll see what the next six years till retirement does for me. But uh, yeah, um, I've been pretty fortunate to travel across the country and work with some other police services in operational and training environments. And uh, I think the more you get out, the the uh, the more you learn about what you're doing and how everybody else is doing stuff. So I've been, like I said, I've been pretty fortunate with my career so far. I'm a Calgary kid, born and raised, and I'm still living in Alberta, and I still have plans to go
0: home at some point. So yeah. Eventually. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that uh, when we had talked previously, one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about was you're not just I'd say you're not just an instructor because you're actually the divisional coordinator for two separate programs, one being the tactical Carbide program and the other being the plain clothes covert officer. So we can go into each one of those separately, but one of the ones that always stuck out to me was plain clothes yeah, now being a civilian, like not having been in policing myself um and for probably a lot of people listening to this right now when when you think plain clothes officers, you think you know what you see on t v you see you know, the detectives in their suits doing that kind of stuff, or you automatically go to guys that are doing like undercover work, the UC guns and gang stuff. I think there's probably a lot more to it than what the general public thinks. Can you kind of lay it out a little bit for us? Yeah,
1: for sure. I, really, what you just talked about is the kind of two uh, polar extremes of plainclothes policing and in, in most police services, right? But for sure in our outfit. You know, the one you see on TV with the, well, I guess you see both of them on TV now, I guess these days, but uh, members that work on drug units uh, that do some surveillance, there's dedicated surveillance teams, there's covert ops or undercover programs uh, that exist in, in pretty much every uh, policing organization and every other law enforcement organization for that matter. Yeah, so plainclothes uh, is both of those things that you talked about, but it, there's a ton of stuff in between that. And part of my job in that in this division with the RCMP is trying to organize training and develop training that's specific to those uh, officers needs. So everything from officer safety to urban tactics, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think that you know the stereotypical things are correct, but there's a there's a whole uh, whole bunch of things in between that in terms of uh, work profiles. I can really only talk specifically about the RCMP in that respect, but working with other police services, we they have the same same range of profiles as we do. They're just on a bit smaller scale, right? Because we're you know eighteen or twenty thousand where most police services are in the, you know, twenty two hundred range. So yeah.
0: That's one of the reasons why I asked aside from the units that, you know, do it day in and day out, um, you know, like those extremes that we talked about, yep. from your training standpoint, when you're trying to have to roll out programs and run training for, you know, somebody who may only ever carry in plain clothes a couple times in their career. Is that something that you guys actively focus on or is that something that's kind of just you know figure it out. Well, yeah.
1: It's funny you say that because I I think historically and I can, and and for us uh it's been historically that we've moved to plain clothes units and done what the officers that were there before us did, right? And then that, you know, that just goes year over year and I get in there for a couple of years, and then I show the next new crop what I learned, and so on. But there wasn't a wasn't an extremely large amount of uh, formal training for plainclothes members, and so members going into those units are now starting to get a little bit of training, and we're in the process of developing some good training programs for those specifically for the plainclothes people. There's been there's been uh, training programs for on the covert ops side for quite a while. But uh, in terms of just the general plainclothes member, there hasn't been a whole lot of formal training out of there. Uh, out there, and, and that's in North America as well from the, the research that I've done. It's all anecdotal research, of course, just uh, talking to other police officers and other agencies. So, you know, we're are working hard to get there. I know that some, other, some of the other uh, municipal police services have programs where they're tr- teaching uh, plainclothes carry concepts to their recruits before they go out into the field for the first time. And I think that's pretty smart. If nothing else, it gives that officer a foundation and a little bit of confidence, uh, when they get you know, ripped out of that uniform that they've been wearing for the last six months or a year, or however long their training programs take. And then all of a sudden they're in plain clothes. Right. So uh, I think it gives them a comfort and confidence level that not all of us have been afforded to in our, in our careers. Right. So it's, uh, things are, things are looking up and, uh, those members are getting more attention and uh, it's a, it's a good thing.
0: Absolutely. There's actually, it brings a few questions to mind. Um, and, and one of them is where are you guys pulling tactics from when you're developing these courses? Is it something that you're able to turn over kind of at a high rate? You know, if, you know, something comes out next week, what's the, what's the turnover time to actually be able to implement that? And where are you guys getting that stuff from?
1: Uh, well, Uh, The one thing I can say in my experience in in my organization for, you know, the last 18, almost 19 years is that uh, uh, things used to move quite slowly. Uh, And it's a it's a giant organization, you know, for being honest. And it's it's, you know, I'm not here to defend any one thing or anything, but uh, it's a huge organization and things take time when uh, when you have one organization spread across the country. Uh, The one thing I would say now is that things move a lot quicker Uh, Now there are uh, processes in place that help streamline good ideas like this, specifically around safety or officer safety or workplace safety. Things move a little bit quicker and for good reason, right? But I think we have, you know, the right people in the right seats on the bus on on a fairly regular basis now. And I think that makes a big difference, right? In terms of where we find this stuff, that's probably one of the most important things that have changed over, I don't know, probably the last five or six years. That doesn't seem like a long time because it isn't the important thing is that uh we're headed in the right direction you know historically we've talked you know for lack of a better way of explaining it we've talked amongst ourselves you know uh, within organizations and i think the municipal police services have, have had this uh, uh process as well where you have people with a pretty extensive experience operational tactical otherwise and we get together and we we try to problem solve some of the issues that we may think are out there or, you know, one or two incidents occur. And then we try and build training to address that or update old training. And one of the things that I see now that we're participating in, especially in Alberta, is sharing, you know, going to other police services and, and talking to them about what they're doing uh, in whatever area. So if it's plain clothes, I uh, have a really good relationship with both of the major police services and, in this province and we're, we're sharing back and forth. Uh, realizing we can learn each learn stuff from each other right and I think that's probably been the biggest gain looking outside our own bubble and asking other police services what they're doing uh, realizing that we're all you know doing the same job it's just at different levels and different proportions and with some different dynamics we're finding out we have the same challenges uh, and we're we're working together to try and problem solve those and maybe help each other make those things happen a little bit quicker we can show our own agencies that other agencies are and multiple agencies are doing a task or a tactic a certain way and that it's something that we should look at or maybe we can adopt it right away
0: i was going to just say that's a that's a really great point and actually in fact the first time we had talked i'd mentioned one of the reasons why i decided to kind of put this platform together was because uh, in my experience um, agency to agency um, or tactics and and training has been very insular Um, and it absolutely you know either and it i'm sure within the rcmp itself you know from division to division you know definitely going outside to municipal agencies or you know reaching out to you know the canadian forces talking to the cansofcom guys Mm -hmm. and all the things i mean it's it used to be like pulling teeth trying to get people to share valuable information that could be saving someone's life and i think you made a great point there is that in everyone i've spoken to recently about it it seems like that attitude is changing it seems like everyone's starting to realize that this is information that's valuable to everybody and we're kind of all on the same team so why don't we actually just start sharing as much as we can
1: yeah absolutely I think there's you know there's there could be a a million reasons why we didn't do it in the past and certainly you know from a pride standpoint you don't want to go somewhere else and find out that all the stuff you're doing isn't where it needs to be right so I think we've uh, slowly made a commitment and come to the realization that we can go to another police service and learn from them. And, you know, they can learn from us as well. So it's not just about going there and being humbled by whatever they do, which happens from time to time, right? Because some people, you know, some agencies are in a different place uh, than others, right? They're focusing on different things. and, and, And that's actually a good thing, right? Because uh, we're not all working on the same thing at the same time, so we we can share that stuff, and I think that's another piece that helps us uh, get to that finish line or that next step with that, with whatever that tactical or operational or whatever training challenge that we have. We just want to be able to get to the next step and improve the product that we're delivering to those frontline members, right? There's never really a finish line because there's always something new to learn, and there might be another better tactic or a piece of technology we can use to to make that. Uh, challenge safer or that environment safer for our police officers or allow them to do a better job a more efficient effective job for for the people that we're serving out there too so yeah the sharing piece is huge and you mentioned special forces aspect with some retired members that have moved on and developed businesses where they're passing along their expertise and we've also tapped into that you know with companies like Millbrook uh, out of uh, Stittsville in Ontario and uh You know, they've been very good uh, when there's companies like that, that with uh, individuals with an uh, expertise in many different profiles, for sure it's military, but there's tons of crossover in terms of uh, concepts, in terms of how to problem solve and think tactically and doing the thing you're doing safely in the environment you're in, right? You have to realize the environment's probably pretty dangerous typically, but you still need to do things as safely as you can. And they're very good at that. And uh, so we've looked to private
0: organizations too, to help us see other opportunities. You know, it's funny you say that I actually did an interview yesterday with Scott Warren. I don't know if you know Scott, he has his own consulting company now that he kind of started up on the heels of uh, leaving active duty and We had the exact same discussion about how, you know, agencies are starting to go more to the private side and and pulling the knowledge and the wealth of experience from the guys that have been in operations for, you know, the last 10, 15 years that have put all the training and tactics into play and basically have been able to to go through and be like, this works, this doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it, it really expedited that training process one of the other things that we actually talked about, and I know this is something that, that you had mentioned before, and especially um, being out uh, in Alberta um, was Marithorpe. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of just give me the, give us a quick Coles notes um, as to what Marithorpe, what the incident in Marithorpe was, how it happened. And just kind of, just so that people can understand.
1: Yeah, I know yeah, Marithorpe was a incident that occurred back in 2003 Basically, uh, it was an investigation that was an auto theft drug investigation that started out at uh, Jim Roscoe's farm just east of Marithorpe here in Alberta. Mr. Roscoe actually ended up leaving the scene. We later found out that he went to a few different places. But in the meantime, members from Marithorpe and White Court Detachment were tasked with uh, the scene security there. In the end, uh, one thing led to another and Jim Roscoe was able to get back onto his property. Uh, and back into the Quonset while uh, the members were tasked otherwise. And a shooting occurred there uh, where four members were, uh, were murdered right in that Quonset. One of the responding members, or one of the members that was at the Quonset at the time, had just arrived with his partner. from an auto theft, auto theft uh, investigation group, and he was a, an, also an ERT member. And uh, he ended up actually interacting with, uh, with Jim Roscoe, shot him once, and, uh, Jim Roscoe went back into the Quonset and ended up ending his own life. And yeah, so that's, that's how we ended up being there. You know, certainly feel fortunate that, uh, that, that ERT member was there because I think the casualty count probably would have went higher, uh, if he hadn't have, uh, stopped him when he did. So, but yeah, that's a, you know, basic outline of, of what happened that day. Uh, Jim Roscoe was well known to the RCMP, uh, well known to the RCMP in that area for various reasons. And uh, it it, uh, ended very tragically, and I think we learned lots from it. And uh, certainly for me, that was the catalyst like we were just talking about.
0: With that incident and kind of tying into exactly what we were just talking about and another one of your expertises, which is the uh, tactical carbine and log gun training, when incidents like that happen, and and it always seems to be like there has to be an incident for something to change quickly. When something happens, and it's a tragedy like Merthorpe was, or we had also talked about Spiritwood, and then also with Moncton, when that kind of stuff happens, does that? Do you find that that expedites the process, and and why is that? Why why does it take that kind of incident, or why does it take an officer or officers losing their lives in order for? the people up top to realize, okay, maybe we could be doing something better.
1: It's a good question. I think it's a difficult question to ask because it's easy for, uh, it's easy for you and I to sit, uh, wherever we are, whether it's in a, you know, in patrol vehicles, door to door, having a chat about, uh, this happened again. And why haven't, uh, why haven't the bosses at the top changed things? And the answer is really never that simple, right? Um, uh, I will say this, uh, you know, there's these these things ha- these things that have happened. So if we use those three as an example, and those are those are three um, pretty significant ones for the RCMP uh, in North America. Uh, those are um, three of many incidences that have happened where people have either scratched their heads or wondered why does this stuff continue to happen. And, and from a training standpoint, I, I look at those things and. You know uh, there's no argument that they're tragic and we need to look at them for what they are and see if there's places where we can where we can uh, work towards avoiding those things happening again Um, but I think it's also important from a training standpoint to look at uh, is what happened in Moncton or is what happened in Merithorpe or is what happened in Spiritwood or uh, in Dallas, where the four members were murdered um you know or in Toronto or wherever are are those things is that incident indicative of a trend in policing where officers are getting injured or killed or put at high high risk and and then look at what we need to fill those holes in terms of training right what skill sets we need to develop so for me, having been an operational member member uh and not in a training environment when those when those incidents occurred, um, certainly I had those feelings. Um, I don't think there's anything that you and I could do from a training standpoint in terms of like just uh, revamping programs and adding new programs and adding new weapon systems and all that kind of stuff that's gonna eliminate these incidents from happening. Um, but certainly, uh, there is. Uh, there are opportunities for us to do training in terms of uh, tactics and problem solving uh, and teaching more people how to use some of the weapon systems uh, on a regular basis, right? So there's competencies built in there. And then changing the mindset of the Canadian police officer is is probably a pretty key thing there. But in terms of why these incidents uh, prompt uh, some action, in varying degrees it's for me i believe it's the the public scrutiny first and foremost uh that uh, that comes out of it um uh and and with that comes you know uh different forms of support and action from other levels of government potentially but i think it's the scrutiny that comes out of those things and and certainly i think there's a personal motivation from senior management where they don't want to see anything like that ever happen again and uh you know and then there's a bunch of other factors that come into play in terms of being able to actually you know roll out those kind of effective changes over a short period of time and that's
0: that's a that's a mountain sometimes the sad fact is i think you're you're absolutely right it's those incidents probably have been predicted or have been avoided and when we talk about the the state of the world now um, it almost seems like these types of incidents or um, more specifically things like active shooter incidents are becoming more and more commonplace. And it seems to be for myself from the outside looking in, it seems to be almost kind of a constant battle, keeping the officers trained to a standard that they can do their job effectively versus the public doesn't see the police as a military force. Um, And militarizing the police force, you know, tacking them out, um, you know, and that was always the, you know, I know that was the first thing that ever came out when they started putting carbines inside of the police cars was that why? And you're like, well, here's, (laughs) there's overwhelming evidence as to why, Mm -hmm. why are you so opposed to it? You know what I mean? And I'm assuming you're kind of at the forefront of that battle kind of day in and day out.
1: We have been probably for the last six years. We started the carbine rollout, I believe, in uh, 2012, and that was across the country. So, you know, that's not going to – that isn't a – that that's not a three-month plan, right? We're still uh, rolling out carbine, carbines to detachments, and so we're still training people, and that's a process. Um, uh, you know, fortunately, now we're at the point where we are uh, running – uh, that C8 carbine program training course, the user course, uh, at our training academy. So the new members, for the most part, are coming into the field with that, with the ability to run that uh, that particular weapon system. So that's that's nice. And I think that uh, for a long time, and I know I certainly grew up in that environment from the uniform and police cars and and everything, was kind of soft. It was a soft sell. Some of that is with the slower pace of you know, kit update and equipment update and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and you know that that's going to speed up just by you know simple virtue of the the very thing we're doing right now is talking to each other, you know, live on a podcast, and you're in one province and I'm in another, right? The transfer of technology is so quick now that we can learn uh, about new things and get new things a little bit quicker. So I think that's changed. I think the reality is is something you started to allude there is that. We're getting those guns because we need to protect ourselves and the public from people that would do them harm that have those guns and maybe more. But when, you know, when the public sees members wearing tactical helmets and we have armored vehicles now, it does uh, offend the senses a little bit, I think. And uh, I think we, you know, there's a few things we can do. Uh, explain our position. Uh, maybe a little better than we have and just communicate more, talk more with the public about why those exist. You know, it's not enough for us to do what we may have done 30 or 40 years ago and just tell people they don't understand. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think I'll leave the, uh, you know, we, you, I think you ended it off there perfectly explaining, you know, the, the, some of the things that do need to, that have been changing and, and can change as far as public perception. Of our police officers especially when it comes to tactical equipment and, and appearance so let's leave that where it lies and one of the things that you did bring up there so i'll kind of tie it in a little bit um, but you had talked about you know the new the new kit that was rolled out with the outer vests and things like that that you guys have now agencies and places all around canada and definitely down in the united states uh, it varies from almost person to person sometimes it can where you know it's okay it's an issued piece of kit sometimes they say just go get your own sometimes people can bring their own and get it signed off what is the from your experience where does that balance out maybe just in in the guys that you work with right now is it is it like a 50 50 um do you guys just kind of go with what they're given or are there people out there now that are saying that you know what there's a lot better stuff out here and i'm gonna kind of transition over
1: well you know there's no question for me uh in almost eight years in the plain clothes environment uh that there's uh that there's kid out there that's not necessarily approved (laughs) you know and that and and some of that in in their in their slash our defense uh because i was there uh is is because there there isn't a specific solution for that whatever the challenge is in terms of uh carrying tools or weapons or whatever okay and so can't not go and do the job that you've been asked to do so you need to find ways to effectively and safely do that so there's that and then there's another group and i'm sure in your professional experience you've seen that as well adam where there's a group that uh, doesn't like uh, what they got and then they seek something else out that they think is uh, is better Uh, certainly there's risks with that right when you're talking about getting a different uh you know, soft body armor system. So different supplier, maybe different level, different manufacturing uh, process, and all that kind of stuff. So there are risks in terms of indemnification and liability and all that stuff. I'm not saying that's not happening in every police service, but uh, I think you know, for the most part, I think the vast majority of members are taking the approved kit and using it. Uh, and I'm for sure, not saying that everybody's happy with it because I know they aren't. And uh, you know, when, you're, when you have big contracts for things like the external carrier, for example, you're not always going to have the exact same product every five years. Sometimes they'll come out with a little bit different version of it. And then, and then that starts that whole thing, right? And that, that's human nature, right? Uh, I will say, right, you know, right now, I think the biggest thing for us with the membership that I hear day in and day out with the Carbine program is the hard body armor. And it's very good. It's heavy, but it's, it is a good product. And there, but there are, you know, it's just like anything, as soon as you get the one thing, right. You know, as soon as you get your, your iPhone 10, there's an 11 or there's a whatever, you know, there's a 10 plus Mm. plus. So you, you can, you just can't win there. Certainly there's some newer products out there, a little bit lighter, which I think is important with all the other kit that, that members are carrying. And it's not just the RCMP, right? So, but we have to realize where we are, uh, and the size of our organization and that, uh, those kind of changes come a little bit slowly. Um so yeah, I have no doubt that there's some some kid out there that's not uh, not exactly approved, but I, I don't think it's as rampant as some of us would like to think it
0: is. All I could all I could think was I remember um I can just remember always a, the specific example of, of being out in training and you, it was issued kit only. Um and I remember that until you were, you know, trades trained and the guys and the one that everybody always tried to get away with was boots because the issued boots that we had mark fours at the time um sucked for me personally I could just never get a boot that fit correctly and I always had hot spots always had issues um so I always chanced it I bought my own set of boots and I always wore them out in the field thinking that within 15 minutes they were going to be covered in mud anyway and nobody was going to notice and I rolled the dice and I always got away with it but uh but there Definitely, guys that didn't, and uh, it didn't go so, didn't go so well for them when the sergeant walks over and goes, uh, "Hey, nice boots," and, and you're kind of like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> good That's, luck to you." Yeah. <laughs> I'm awkward, this way.
1: awkward moment. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. we 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 had that historically. Right right now we have uh, we have allowances for you know it's not it it doesn't cover the cost of uh, a good duty boot, but uh, we have allowances now that gives gives us a you know, the freedom to go and buy a boot that works for us. Uh, certainly there's an obligation to not go and buy some, you know, it's got to be a black boot and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's got to fit into the duty uniform setup, but uh, we have a little more freedom to, to decide on that. North Americans, uh, you know, that's one thing I've seen from working with some of the American police services is that there's, you know, to say that I learned to appreciate my own organization more than I ever did when I went overseas and, and taught with, uh you know, the Sudanese police, uh, would be an understatement. So for me, that's a, the far end of the extreme. But when you look at, uh, and I'm not trying to make a comparison between the United States and, and Africa by any means, but uh, to completely different countries, but the police officers in the States, uh, like you pointed out to, there's, uh, there's a wide range of kit. And all you have to do is watch some of the policing uh, shows that are out there, whether it's, uh, uh, what's the live show there? I sound like I'm 157 and I don't, can't pick out these shows. but
0: Is it Live PD, that one now, that kind of cops but live?
1: Yeah, so you look at that and, you know, not just police service to police service, but, you know, car to car, every member that gets out has got something a little bit different on. And uh, it's because, you know, a lot of those police services, those members buy all their own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, on top of on top of making a wage that uh, that I'm not sure I, I would be too, too happy about doing this kind of a job for.
0: Sometimes even their firearms, they, they buy and bring themselves.
1: Absolutely. Typically, a lot of the, uh, the bigger police services will have uh, you know one or two approved firearms, ones that they'll issue, and then they have a list of ones that they've approved that you can go and buy yourself and uh and that's an interesting thing but you also have to realize right i think there's something like almost two firearms for every single american in the us so they they got a lot of guns down there so
0: <laughs> one or two
1: yeah yeah <laughs> something like that yeah so um yeah it's different right so you know on one hand we don't always like everything that we get given to us uh, but on the other hand we could be faced with that and some people would be saying, well, great, but when you stop and think about the amount of money it costs to kit a police officer out, uh, for me I'm very thankful that I work in a country and an organization that uh, supplies us with the critical stuff, you know, and uh, for the most part it's, it's decent kit and it's better than it's ever been, in my opinion uh, and I can only speak to like the last 18 or so years, so it's just a, a small sample but the things that I started with uh, and the things that I have now, uh in terms of kit selection and tools and stuff like that so much better uh than it used to be so
0: i a hundred percent agree, and I can only again speak to my time with the Canadian forces, but it was always you you were kind of in awe of the amount of equipment and the sometimes just the quality of equipment that was given to you starting out um and you're like and and sometimes too, if you were lucky enough, um you had core staff or uh NCOs or you know senior officers that would come up to you and be like you know what you know I was over in Ukraine or I was over in you know Afghanistan or wherever and the other forces uh, allied forces around the world don't have what you have so don't complain about the kit that you go with. absolutely and I think you know I think that's I think that speaks a lot to you know everyone shits on the government for being like, oh, well, they don't take care of the military. They don't take care of their police officers, that, 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 that. there's there's that's a yes. It's it's such a gray area because it's, in some places they, they really do. And I think it's actually underappreciated. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think is where would you draw the line as far as they, these are the things that I'm definitely not going to mess around with? And these are some things that I would I would wear out on duty.
1: Uh, I wear my own boots. And uh, I wear a comfortable t-shirt, Uh summer, winter, I'll, I'll pick an underlayer that works for me. That's the sa- the, the right color, <laughs> right? Uh, there are uh, other products out there for pants, uh, the blue pants with the yellow stripes. And I don't think there's been a, you know, a full scale condemnation from the, from the organization about people that have gotten those uh, kind of aftermarket pants. Uh, some of them are five eleven some of them are, are made by other private companies they fit a little better they're a little more flexible uh, they have some stretch in them and that sort of thing and you know some some things play part in that like if there's a if there's a, a delay or a problem in the procurement process with with our organization right that opens a window uh, for them to allow these other products to be worn although they I, I don't think they're necessarily endorsed right um, but it You know, the other thing that if we take the second to do with things like this coming up is to have a look at it. How are they working? How are they wearing? You know, and and that kind of thing that might provide an opportunity for uh, some changes, little changes in those pieces of kit. So I've worn those pants before because uh, they work better. And, you know, I went from ruining issue pants to having those aftermarket pants. For a longer period of time right so you know instead of wrecking three pairs of issue pants in a shift row and then having to get them fixed at a cost <laughs> you know i'm buying two pairs of aftermarket ones that that look good uh aren't a standout difference and then they're you know they're lasting a heck of a lot longer so
0: yeah actually um there's a company here in winnipeg uh urban tactical right uh shout out to urban tactical um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so they do the uh, the 511 strike pant. They actually bring in the same yellow stripe mm-hmm. so that they meet standard, I guess, for dress and deportment. Uh, so I know those are a super popular item for them here in Winnipeg, especially, and they get orders from across the country.
1: No doubt, no doubt.
0: No, I definitely agree with you. Pants are, I mean, our our pajamas that we had um, with the forces; those things were comfortable all the time, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I never had a complaint. But I could imagine I've, I've seen, um, especially even in the security field, private security, the, the, you know, you see a a new guy come in and he's wearing kind of a pair of almost like dress pants Mm -hmm. and you're like, buddy, good, good, good luck with that. You know, like you're going to, you're going to tear those or rip them or you're just going to be chafing all day.
1: No. And that's important, right? That the comfort aspect is important and being able to, you know, put something in your pocket and not worry about, uh the pants ripping the next time you bend over to help somebody or, you know, put somebody on the ground or grab something off the ground. So that's important. But, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I spent a, I spent one or two years of my career, especially in uniform, complaining about this piece of kit and that piece of kit, but I've really come to appreciate what we have and, you know, the new stuff that we have. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly, I don't consider myself to be a company man by any means, but uh, I think we have to be honest about, uh, the really good things that our organizations do for us and the way they uh, um, the way they do help us certainly uh, you know there's there's sometimes roadblocks that are inexplicable but no I think when you look around at uh, most of the police services they're doing more good than bad and I don't mean that as like a fifty-one forty-nine thing I think that you know for the most part uh, th- good things are being done and thoughtful decisions are being made but that that comes and goes right the people that are in leadership positions so it's not enough to just have the right people on the bus even uh, you can't have just have a great group of people you have to have the right people in the right seats on the bus and a really good and a really good driver that knows knows where the bus is going you know and is also willing to change the destination or make a detour where it's needed to be made you know so that's important if all we have is uh, people that just want to keep going in the original on the original mapped out plan at the original speed, uh, you know without any deviations, even though you know there might be roadblocks and you might have to wait to, uh, you know double your trip time <laughs> that 's not good for us you know, so,
0: yeah, all right, Matt. I want to know how you became involved with training. Um, was it something that You want, like, is it something that you were kind of just asked to do or was it something that you had kind of geared yourself towards after being out in the field and then saying, like, I want to get into training?
1: Yeah, you know what? It's a good question. You know, it's still, you know, from time to time still hits pretty close to home for me. Um, Always been, you know, a little bit interested in teaching and learning. Um, never really felt that I had a huge skill set in that. I worked hard to develop it. But the thing that uh, I think really was the catalyst for me getting into the training side uh, was Marathorpe. And, uh, you know, I, I worked in a, a neighboring detachment or a nearby detachment. Uh, not a neighboring one, but nearby. And I worked on a TSU team. We had been called out to, to Marathorpe in probably early morning hours, I think 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And what we didn't know at that time is by that time, the boys had already been, had already been shot and killed. Um, but we, we ended up out there probably about 2 o'clock that afternoon. Took over both Merithorpe and White Court detachments in terms of the operational policing aspect and let those members that were working there go home to their families and be where they needed to be in the aftermath. And the other thing that we did was we took over the scene. And did scene security and uh, over the next you know, few days did a few things in terms of uh, securing the scene for the for evidence teams and that kind of stuff. And I remember being, I uh, can't remember why I was there, but I remember being at the Quonset, uh, right at the front of the Quonset and standing by my police car uh, talking to a serviced member and just standing there looking at that Quonset and just thinking to myself, uh, and I think I actually said it out loud. Is just that we we failed, we failed those boys, that day, and uh, and for me, you know, for the most part, the things that happened to us, some things just happen. But I think the the many of the things, if we were to look back at incidents in Canada and North America, there is a straight line back to training in terms of what things we can do to help our officers be safer in whatever environment they're in. Uh, help them change their mindsets be think more tactically and strategically take care of each other and, and all those sort of things but uh, you know not to say that those things were present in all, all the things I just talked about in uh, but it but it did get me starting to think that we are not or we're not doing enough for our frontline people and so I just started to try to find ways to become involved in training and the first area I became involved in was on the public safety unit side on the public order side. Uh, And then it just snowballed where I started getting into the firearms programs and the officer safety programs. And then uh, uh, when I was in the plainclothes unit, so I did about four years in federal drugs in Calgary, uh, a couple years in organized crime. And then I ran a surveillance team for the national security side in Calgary just after the shootings in Ottawa. So that whole time started working on some plain clothes programs and then when i when i ended up in edmonton at headquarters working in the tactical training section just really started to drill down and talk to other agencies and seek out you know companies like millbrook and centrifuge uh training out at of a, at a fort worth texas who's uh, somebody we should probably talk about uh another time uh but it's a it's a great evidence-based program it just kind of snowballed from there adam and uh, That's where I am today. So, uh, yeah, it was a terrible tragedy that kind of catalyst for me becoming involved in training. And I think we're doing lots of good stuff now. And we have a long way to go, but we're doing the right things. And we're not leaving our programs uh, stagnant for 10, 15, 20 years anymore. We're having, you know, the carbine program, for example, uh, is about six years old. And we're already on version 12. And so for me, that's not an indictment. That's actually an endorsement of the fact that, you know, we have a core working group, a national core working group that continually looks for ways to improve the program. And I think it's been the model for us. And I see the other programs that we're uh, renewing now as uh, reflective of that, where we're not so hesitant to change the thing out of a matter of pride and uh, actually proud to change the things because the things we're talking about changing are improvements, right? So, yeah that's that's where that all came from my
0: friend listen scott you know just in in hearing you explain the background and and i and i didn't know too too much about it i gotta tell you man i think you made the absolute right choice going into training and taking that on your shoulders to you know be at the forefront and make those changes to kind of do whatever you can to try to prevent something like that from ever happening again. And I think that takes a very special person. So I just personally want to say thank you for doing that. And I'm sure all the service men and women under you that get to train with you day in and day out also appreciate everything that you're doing for the man. So thank you very much for that. Well,
1: I appreciate the, the words, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I you know, have to say that I'm fortunate to work with a tremendous group of people and uh, I've totally fed off of them. So uh, it's been a real pleasure for me.
0: So we're gonna definitely have to have you back on we're gonna have to talk about centrifuge and Millbrook and uh for the, anybody listening here we can we'll definitely link those guys on the show notes page or on the website you can check them out yourselves but we're gonna we'll have you back on we'll talk more about these guys and maybe even see if we can get some of those guys out on uh, on a call with us and if uh, if you'd like you can definitely join us on that call um, we'll do like a three way four way I don't even know how it'll work but we'll make it happen. <laughs> So uh, I I definitely hope that uh, you'll be willing to come back for Absolutely. us. Uh, and I really really spend the time today. Yeah, man. my
1: pleasure, Adam. It was great chat. I uh, appreciate chatting with you about all these uh, these topics.
0: Awesome, thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Scott and I had today. If you are looking to get a hold of Scott, you can reach out to him at Virgil VirgilB2K. That's V-I-R-G-I-L-B2K on Twitter. You can also shoot us a message at TheBreakdown.ca. Say, hey, I want to get in touch with Scott, and we'll put you guys in touch with him. As always, if you guys are enjoying the content that we're putting out there, Make sure to subscribe to the channel, whether it's on iTunes or your Android device. We love putting this stuff out there. We love it even more when people are getting something out of it. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.